I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. The great pleasure of it was to keep the original London and lay over it a sheen of what, of how it would have changed. When a butterfly flaps its wings, what might the world look like if history had panned out ever so slightly differently? It's June 1955, and rather than fighting against one another in war, Britain and Germany have formed an alliance. Britain is now a protectorate of Germany, ruled over by the Nazi ideologue Alfred Rosenberg. The royal family has been usurped and Queen Wallace Simpson reigns in their place. What follows is a regime hell-bent on controlling the past and the future by editing both history and literature. The concept of rewriting the narrative is a major area of focus in this novel and is in some ways frighteningly reminiscent of what's going on in today's world. This dystopian future, or rather past, is the setting of feminist alternative history novel Queen High from the author Jane Thin, written under a pseudonym C.J. Carey. I'm delighted to say that Jane's my guest today. Chapter 1, The Great What-Ifs. Division is rife. Female society has been divided into castes, from lowly widows all the way up to the elite, with everything in between. Queen High picks up two years after Jane's novel Widowland, and two years after the assassination of The Leader, a man we know to be Hitler. The character Rose Ransom, originally tasked with rewriting literature for the Ministry of Culture, has now been appointed Poet Hunter, focusing on the outlawed subject of poetry. What's thrilling and harrowing about this novel is how easily you can imagine how history may have turned out this way. For example, it's no secret that Rosenberg had always wanted England for his own, and had even asked Hitler if it could be his post-war, should there be one. And in this world, we see what sort of ruler he could have been. It's a very stratified society. One of Rosenberg's enthusiasms was the the idea of castes in society. And so in this society, women have been divided into six castes from the top to the bottom. And the bottom is a caste called, nicknamed Frieders. They're women over 50 who are single and have no man and no children. So they are the very bottom of society. It's set over two weeks. It's a a tightly moving thriller, I hope, in which um, to this benighted land is coming President Eisenhower. There's going to be a whole new rapprochement and the alliance is going to be welcomed into the modern world. But our heroine and protagonist, Rose Ransom, is not so sure about that. There are many things she's not so sure about. And I love the fact that we meet Rose again, which is nice. So we are, as you say, we're we're two years on. And it's quite extraordinary to me how you've created a world which actually, I think, given what we've lived through, Jane, over the last few years, I consider myself to live in a permanent state of being shocked but not surprised. And so everything in this as you have reimagined London and indeed the world to be, it feels authentic. I'm more than happy to go there and completely suspend my disbelief when you talk about what's there, 
or what's not there and what's still there, but used for ever so slightly different purposes. It's not that much of a stretch, is it, to think that actually there was peace, there was this alliance that was formed, the war kind of never really happened. What I particularly love, and we will try and make this as spoiler-free as possible, is that in, in neither of these two books do you mention Churchill at all, which I find fascinating given the relationship that Edward had with Halifax and what might have been ever so slightly different. Edward is, is in our world, in our precinct, is not is not mentioned, but Wallace is. But that all you've done is taken things that happened in a way that we think we understand and, and repurposed them. It just feels so natural. Oh, and th thank, thank you for saying that. Well, absolutely. I've always thought one of the great what ifs of 20th century history would be Edward VIII actually ascending to the throne and, and ruling. And what we know, everything we now know, is that Edward was very friendly to the Nazi regime. We've got documentary evidence that he asked Hitler to bomb London more heavily in the aim of peace. So we, it's always been one of those really interesting sliding doors moments to me. What if Halifax had been prime minister instead of Churchill? Would an alliance have been formed? And how different life would have been? And I think we've got um, so much of our consciousness, or those of us, you know, born in the 20th century has been built from World War II, so much of our ideas about ourselves, our myths about ourselves sometimes. And so the, the fun of a counterfactual, although it has a more serious point to it too, is just to slightly kind of change, change the direction of travel so that you, you examine how a population might have been in different circumstances. And what you say about sometimes feeling that this is writing about today, Yes, um, all dystopia is writing about the present moment. and um, But the fact that I wrote a lot of this in lockdown is incredibly significant because where better to get the idea of a completely suffocating, stratified society beset by random rules and regulations that change all the time than lockdown. So I definitely imported quite a lot of reality into it too. And it, and it shines through. I'm particularly interested in the flip that you've made, which actually isn't really a flip because it is based on, on what actually happened. We know or we understand the Nazis burning books, but what we don't necessarily understand is the desire to change books and to oh, change yes. the course of history, which in Queen High has now extended into, into the fictional world. And Rose has spent quite a lot of time rewriting the classics across these two books. I wanted to share one because it is absolutely my favourite and when when the proofs came through, this is genuinely a case of you had me at feminist dystopia. But this is the beginning of a very famous Jane Austen novel that has been completely rewritten to it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single woman in possession of a womb must be in want of a husband. I mean, it's very simple, but very this was this actually happened, didn't it? This the, the desire to change the factual record was there. Mm. This sprung, actually, the whole uh, Widowland and Queen High world sprung from uh, something I stumbled over when I was uh, researching World War II, because I've written lots of novels set in wartime Germany. 
one of the things that Alfred Rosenberg did was he assembled a team of SS scholars and he sent them to comb occupied Europe and all the libraries and all the private collections to find history books, which they was then set to rewrite. And I did think this was amazing. I mean, what I'd known up to then was just that the Nazis burnt books. The idea of actually correcting the record to such a diligent degree was, I suppose, in a way, what the Nazis were all about, but um, really astonished me. And that's how the imaginative leap came. I thought, wow, what would happen if they'd come to England and somebody had to correct English literature to align it with Nazi ideology? And that would be interesting because the whole of um, 19th century English literature is dominated by big women, um, mm. you know, Jane Austen and, and the Brontes and George Eliot. And they're all, lots of these famous books are about women finding agency and, and um, challenging masculine dominance. So wouldn't it be interesting if somebody, if a woman who'd never encountered them before was having to, um, to rewrite them? So that was the fun of that. And it was a kind of jeu d'esprit, but of course some there were kind of deeper I hope, deeper resonances in the idea of how truth and record are so easily perverted and so easily rewritten. And so when I came to Queen High, we've moved on to poetry, and that was just Rose is now in charge of editing poetry. Most poetry is banned because it's illogical, it's subversive, it doesn't like have straight meaning, but a few poems survive, and she now is rewriting those. And that I took that straight from Stalin's Russia. Chapter two, Department of Unlearning. History is written by the winners and when an occupying force takes over, they shape everything in their own image. This has been true across the ages and is why the scenarios depicted in Queen High are so believable. When you read that a place like Trafalgar Square has lost its name, or that the phrase ten a penny has become ten a fennec, you start to wonder, what's next? What about the National Gallery? The BBC? These changes are drip-fed to us all the way through the novel, and it's an utter delight. The great pleasure of it was to keep the original London and lay over it a sheen of what, of how it would have changed. And and of course, so as you say, Trafalgar Square is now Hydric Square, and... Um, Churches are largely decommissioned, so they become civic centres. And um, it becomes frighteningly easy to imagine this happening. One of the big thrusts I wanted also to get to in Queen High is how you, how an authoritarian state, and indeed any state, goes about eradicating awkward memories. I remember in, uh, when Tiananmen Square happened, and now the date of Tiananmen Square, which is the 4th of the 6th, 89, is banned. It's banned in China. You can't, if you mention that date, you get arrested. And um, I, I wanted this idea of unlearning the past to be really, to be really kind of central to how you would kind of implement a new regime. So you would need people to forget their history before you kind of create a new history. So the whole thrust of Queen High is, is a department of unlearning has been founded. And the important thing is to get the population to unlearn what they what they knew. And it's seen as a compassionate thing, because if you unlearn traumatic things, you can think of happy things. Absolutely. And it's I know it was very well 
I know it's very well intentioned by the authorities as you've as you've written them. It's deeply troubling at the same time. The fact that it, it is it is even illegal now to talk about what you refer as the time before. So in the two years, we have essentially reset time, given the big event that occurs at the end of Widowland. And we're in year two. And my brain is going, no, you're in year 1955. But no, it's not. That doesn't exist now. This is year two, because this is an attempt for people like me, if I lived through this, to unlearn. You know, I'm being, you use the term bleaching. You know, you are bleaching my memory of everything that I think I know. And that is supposed to be a good thing. And yet I'm, I actually take huge comfort in it as well, as well as being appalled by it. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it is a sinister thing. I mean, but I kind of took it straight from the Nazi playbook. They they wanted and indeed did rename all the months at one stage um, because they felt they were too close to a kind of Christian calendar. And so did Mussolini. And um, this idea, this fanaticism of exerting your control over really every aspect of human life is something that the Nazis did. But the, the use of the Nazis in this book, I wanted to be very generic. I know that I have obviously used a historical framework and Nazi personalities like Rosenberg and Heydrich, but I also wanted at the same time to have some sort of generic feeling of authoritarian rule because I, I genuinely believe that all societies have within them the potential for totalitarianism and, and probably the impulse for it. And our, our kind of eternal struggle must be to resist that and to resist trying to invade every every aspect of people's lives. I've been thinking a lot. I've just been on book tour in America, which is in a slightly different place from us as far as speaking your mind and saying what you think, which we've always taken as a kind of essential enlightenment value. And indeed goes back, I think, to Elizabeth I when she said, I do not want to make windows into men's souls. That's been something we've cherished in Britain. But I think it's not shared elsewhere in the Western world. And it's that something that troubles me too. So what I'm saying is I didn't want it to be, I wanted it only to be, obviously it's about World War II and Nazis, but also it's about um, any authoritarian society. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could you could have been talking about Trump. You know, it, it wouldn't have made any real difference. And I think the frustration is perhaps best captured in, in this um, passage, which I'd love to share with you. Well, I share with the audience, actually. You, you wrote it, so I'm not sharing it with you. But this is, you talked about Wallace. So Wallace is queen and Wallace is kicking around Buckingham Palace, which seems to be have been left to her devices for the time being. We know that there are plans for what will happen to the palace. But this is an exchange that she has, or rather a rant that she has at Rose about the situation that she finds herself in. I, I think this is extraordinary. So I'll, I'll attempt to do, to do it justice. Of course you don't. But I go back, Fraulein Ransom. The rest of this goddamn administration might be engaged in erasing history, but I have history. I am history. I know what happened back in what they would have us called the time before. They want everyone to forget. They want to throw a great warm blanket of amnesia over the entire nation. But I'm the hole in that blanket. Some of us still have control of our faculties. They can bleach us all they like, but they'll never eradicate this stain. I mean... That's just I've goosebumps just reading that aloud. I mean, that's just so much in there. And you think when you talk about what might have been, you know, what might 
Queen Wallace have been like had Edward not abdicated and his brother George kept become George the Sixth. You know, she for me is a brooding presence over this entire novel, and she just seems to be just sat there hating it all, you know, and, and quietly raging about what's happened to her. But she could, as you say, she could have been referring to any kind of oppression or, or authoritarian regime, right? Oh, I loved writing Wallace. Wallace is just was so much fun to write. And it's not coincidental that we also, at the time, had an American royal who kind of absolutely loathed the royal family and was dying to get back to America. Um, and that was it was fun to channel a bit of that into it too. But Wallace, um, if you read her autobiography, The Heart Has Its Reasons, there's a feistiness about Wallace. And um, I wanted to really bring that out. And the idea, she, she remains in the novel, she's a widowed queen and um, she's rattling about in Buckingham Palace, which is kind of in a state of disrepair. And she knows that the authorities, the Nazis dislike, they hated all royalty, they felt it was archaic, but she's kept on, but she's super nervous because she thinks that something something bad is coming. Mm. But luckily she has a secret weapon. She's got something that could actually ruin any chance of rapprochement for the Alliance in the modern world. And she's got it and she's gonna use it. And this is, she's got the sort of, she's got the time bomb at the centre of the novel. But writing Wallace was just so much fun. You talk about the time bomb, and I think that it's a wonderfully well-observed piece of writing, given what we know about what did come out in, I think it was the 80s or, or, or early 90s, right? But we have mentioned the H word, but, but you don't uh, in the book. In fact, it's not allowed to refer to him by name, he is simply known as the leader. And this is another piece that I just think shows such restraint in the writing because it's so powerful. I knew the time bomb was coming. I knew what it was, but this just completely sideswiped me where the character holds this time bomb in their hands and it just says underneath the name that everyone knew, but no one mentioned. I mean, it's it's almost by not referring to him by name, it gives him either more of an aura or it disempowers him in some way. But the decision for you to not give him a name and not allow that to be spoken, that was very deliberate, wasn't it? Yeah, I think you always diminish, you diminish a, a character and a monster when you talk about them. I mean, I do think that one of the things I've as I say, I've, sit, I've written seven other novels or eight other novels set in pre-war and wartime Germany. I've always shied away from having scenes with Hitler in or close, you know, any scene in which he contributes or anything like that. Partly, he was incredibly aware of this himself. You know, he needed to be the distant idol figure. But also because I think it's really hard. I, I prefer to look at the impression that somebody like um, Hitler has on other people than look at him himself. Not that I haven't looked at himself and read a ton of books about it, but um, it's more interesting to observe what impact he has on other people. And of course, the horrific impact he had on six million other people, you know. So um, that was my feeling. And also, as I say again, that I really wanted this to be much more generic. There's always, you know, and, and terrifyingly today, I notice that 
opinion polls say young people, the vast, the, the, not the vast majority, but the majority of young people want a strong leader and prefer that to democracy. <laughs> I can't believe we're saying this, you know, but, um, you know, the appeal of the strong leader is seems to be eternal and to be treated with caution. Chapter three, The Widows. At the lowest rung of the caste system sit the widows, moved to the fringes, kicked out into the sticks and forgotten about. And in this, Rosenberg has made the classic mistake of forging a community to rise up against him and of underestimating the power of wisdom. A phrase that repeats itself during the second half of the book is, widows know more than you think. And so it's no surprise that this decision to ostracise them comes back to bite. I adored the widows and everything they stood for, a beautifully well-drawn part of the novel and incredibly important to Jane. Yeah, I mean, again, the widows came from something um, that I, I researched in researching the end of the war in Germany and the ration system for the civilian population. And there was a group of the people who got the worst rations were women over 50 who weren't married and had no children. And they were um, jokingly referred to as Friedhofsfrauen, which means cemetery women. So I took that nickname and, and used it. And so the widows are called Frieders. They're nicknamed the Frieders, the cemetery women. But of course, you know, inevitably, if you get women over 50, I mean, look at look at any book group, you know, you're going to get the most literate women in society. And strangely, put together in ghettos, as you so rightly say, it's, it's actually harder to control thought when you've got um, people in kind of run-down ghettos and lumped together. So, um, but I also didn't want the idea that you get older women put together in a house and they're all going to get on with each other, because actually, I think, hey, you know, they, they're probably going to rub each other up the wrong way. So I wanted that feeling of tension as well. But um, also, I wanted them to be the heroines of the hour, which as you as you read the book, you realise they are. Oh, absolutely. And I was I was delighted to see this story return. And I'd love to ask you about that, because you are a voracious writer of literature. And I I kind of don't really want to want to ask you this because it'll make me feel bad about my own output. But it's not been very long since the first book in this series came out. Did you always intend this to carry on? Was there something about Rose's story and what it represented that meant you you couldn't you couldn't stop at the end of the previous book and had to carry on with this one? And, and if so, are you already three quarters of the way through book three? Where, where, where does this story go, Jane? It's so interesting. What I've realised writing Widowland, which was completely different from the other books I've written, hmm. and I was so nervous about it that I wrote, that I changed my my name and I used a pen name because I thought, oh, I've always done tried to be really specific about history and suddenly I'm doing an alternative history and that just turns everything on its head. So I did it under a pen name, which is C.J. Carey. But... As soon, I, what I really enjoyed was the world building and you've got this freedom when you're doing something that is a sort of completely made up world. You're, you're kind of completely free and this liberation um, really worked for me actually. And so I deliberately didn't, well, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but Rose deliberately lives on the end of the, um, the end of the first book, the end of Widowland, she lives on. And um, indeed she lives on at the end of Queen High as well. And I have found myself, I'm, I'm writing a completely different book now, but I'm finding myself actually really longing to 
it seems perverse to say longing to get back to that world because it's a dystopian world of threat and um you know danger but i've found myself really longing to get back to it so i might do a third one yes oh fabulous i mean i the opening i i was just i felt so warm when the long-suffering detective schumacher is is reintroduced to us and i, I just found myself going oh poor bruno yeah, you know bruno. like what a terrible <laughs> terrible situation that he must have found himself in but yes you're, you're right i think when you do get immersed in world building you kind of carry on and and again some beautifully observed pieces little touches of color like your use of the of the wi and and what they were <laughs> repurposed to achieve and i think the authorities initially see them as some kind of threat and then realize that in the preservation of order and the resetting of a new regime, the WI is exactly the institution you want on your side. That did make me laugh because I love the WI and I've given speeches there and I just thought how hilarious it would be if this was the, it was an institution that was kind of hated and feared in equal measure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Absolutely. Just one more thing for me to share. And again, because the audience of this is predominantly writers and readers, there are some things that in the course of doing this podcast are such a joy that they are absolutely worth sharing, even though people will get to that themselves when they read your book. There is one thing where I had to put the book down and literally applaud you, even though you weren't in the room, because the joy of reading as a reader is great, but the joy of reading as a writer, sometimes you just have to say, that is stunning. That is so good that it's well worth pointing out. And it happens quite late on in the book, but it's just so simple. As it happens, said Wenger, tapping his broken nose, I know what's up. A little bird told me. Wenger knew a lot of little birds. He drank in all the right bird baths. I literally just put the book down and started clapping because that's great. That's so because you know it would have been so easy, perhaps in in, in a in a in a less experienced writer to focus entirely on the world building and not let these characters shine. And everybody, including Wenger, who's hardly in it, everyone, including the long-suffering Schumacher, who does play a significant part of all of this, they all get their moments in the sun, deservedly. And I think the balance of world building and little touches like this is why this book deserves to be on everyone's shelf. In fact, in everyone's hands, forget the shelf, get it now and start reading it. I just, I loved those little touches, Jane, and I just wanted you to know that personally. Well, it's the fun of the police procedure, which I've never done before, actually. Right. And um, I, th- I think I'll definitely do more of that. I love, <laughs> I love it, actually. <laughs> well, Queen High is out. It is the second book in the series. It is an absolute triumph. Jane Thin, writing as CJ Carey. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I'm so grateful. It's been great fun to come on this as well. Thank you. A massive thank you then to Jane Thin for today's episode and to recap, what have we learnt? Dystopia doesn't have to see a world completely reimagined. Sometimes it's the subtle tweaks of the timeline that can draw out the most fascinating story arcs where each changed element of the past still bears an unsettling closeness to reality. By talking about or showing the villains and monsters of your stories too much, 
you may risk diminishing their power. Often a dehumanised villain can strike fear into the hearts of your readers much more effectively. And finally, when you're crafting a compelling and complex story, don't allow your focus to be drawn in completely on the subject of world-building. Remember to pay mind to your characters as well, major and minor, and add those little flourishes that will delight the reader. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 